Welcome to the Christian Wealth Podcast, where people come to learn what the Bible says about money, wealth, and business. Be inspired by some of the greatest Christian thinkers and commentators from around the planet. Enjoy this episode with your host, Alex Cook. Well, welcome everyone to this episode. Uh, Today, I'm very pleased uh, to have with me Jonathan Roachford from Narrow Road Capital. I love that name. Um, Very appropriate given we're talking about investments and uh, and faith. And uh, today, as I've got Jonathan with me, uh, Jonathan is the founder and the portfolio manager for Narrow Road Capital. Uh, So Jonathan, it's great to have you with us on the, uh, the show today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me on, Alex. Look, just tell us a quick bit, you know, it gives us sort of a quick snapshot of who you are and, of course, your business that you've had going now for quite a number of years. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I'm based here in uh, Sydney, uh, run Narrow Road Capital, which is a small funds management business uh, focused on family offices, institutional investors, not-for-profits. Uh, and, and my real focus for them is the debt part of the capital structure. So if you think of your superannuation fund, uh, typically there'll be a mix of uh, equities, property, infrastructure and debt investments. And I focus on the debt investments. And particularly within that, the things that are a little bit less liquid, but have a higher return than, say, government bonds or standard investment grade bonds. Um, and in terms of personal life, um, member of my local church, um, on the parish council there, and uh, been a Christian since my teenage years, and, and that's a huge impact on my life. And what, one of the that's questions it. they often ask people in, in finance is, what's your favourite book and, and what have you learned a lot from? And, and really, there's a lot of crossover between the Bible and life and managing money for people. And, and that mm. real battle uh, as Christians, the battle is with sin and prioritising God and not thinking about sin. And sin is essentially, in a way, short-term thinking. And in financial markets, that's what gets people into trouble almost all the time, mm. is that short-term thinking. If you remember the long-term fundamentals, Very you true. generally do well. Fantastic. No, that's that's great insight. Okay, well, as you say, you're into the debt side of a, of a company when you're looking at uh, investments. Um, you know, often what's, ref- I mean, broadly, you know, financial planners like me tend to refer it as the, the fixed income space. Can you tell us a bit about these types of investments? You know, a lot of people, I think, listening, maybe it's the first time they've you know, they may have heard the term fixed income investments, so they're less familiar with it. You know, the average person's, you know, well aware of property, particularly housing, but uh, less so when it comes to fixed income. So tell us a bit about that sort of space and particularly also the risks too. Yeah, yeah. So it is quite a wide variety of things that are available in, in the fixed income slash debt space. Uh, so if you think of equities on stock exchange, you'll get everything from speculative mining companies through to very large supermarkets, media companies. Um, yeah, there's a whole gamut of things that are there. And, and the debt space is similar in that there's many different industries that you can lend to. Um, and so, for instance, lending against property is a very common thing. Um, lending to governments is a big part of what some people do and looking at government bonds all around the world. Mm. Um, and lending to corporates is also a big part of the, the overall space. Um, I think fixed income can sometimes get people in a little bit of trouble because um, they're thinking about bonds that are fixed rate and the things that I do are predominantly variable rate. Right. Um, yeah. So what that means, 
I guess in most recent context is as bond rates have risen this year, fixed rate bonds have seen their prices fall because the yield on them is, is not as good as people want it to be. Um, I, I'm predominantly investing in floating rate instruments. So what that what that's meant this year is that the amount of interest that my clients receive has risen, mm. but the change in price of the bonds has been pretty minimal. Um, so good space short, to be for this bond, year. Very good space yes, to be in this year. Rising bond rates is, is, is a good thing for my business. Yeah. Well, tell us a bit about what where you sort of see that going. I mean, we've had, you know, the bond market this year is probably one of the worst years in the last, what, 30 or 40 years for government bonds. Obviously, yields have spiked as inflation's taken off um, and bond markets seem to be predicting high yet rates. Where do you kind of see this as all heading over the next sort of 12 months? Yes, yeah. And, and I think whenever we... we take this conversation up we, we need to be careful in saying nobody knows the uh, future, future absolutely in these things and yeah. I, I think the last year or two has taught a lot of people to be humble in these things particularly central banks who said oh no no rates won't rise inflation will be temporary and and now in, inflation amazing. is fairly embedded yeah well and, i mean it was amazing the reserve bank i mean the reserve bank of australia in what was uh, i think november 2021 said no rate rises till 2024 Six months later, you have the fastest rate rises in history. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think, you know, there's a combination of central banks misreading what was happening um, in the data and, and thinking because inflation had not moved for a long time that uh, it just would, would never go up again. Mm. Um, and that's, a, that's a classic financial mistake, saying that things can't happen, just shutting off the possibility of that thinking that positive conditions will continue to last, you know, forever. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one big lesson there. But uh, I think on the inflation side, it's it's a tricky thing to weigh up and it's a tricky thing to kind of have uh, a strong lean either way. Um, so if you try to look forward, uh, you look at things like um, the amount of goods that we buy, that's actually starting to slow. So goods prices, particularly in the U.S., um, the, the most sort of leading indicators are how much is being shipped around, how much is on the trains and the trucks, um, how are the retailers doing? And that, those are all falling away. Those are all saying the amount of goods moving is slowing. And this for the retailers might be a slower Christmas. Uh, flip side to that is services. People are uh, having a strong demand for services. And I think anyone who's looking at traveling this Christmas would know it's it's more expensive than it has been Previously. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So that's that sort of re revenge spending they're calling it is, is coming through. <laughs> all, revenge spending. All yeah. of that is coming through into the services side, not really the good side. And yeah. and the large story behind that is governments gave out huge amounts of money uh, during the COVID period. Mm. Um, you know, they locked down the economy, arguably incorrectly. And then they said, oh, well, we have to do something to offset that. So they started just spraying money all over the place. And yeah. people have received yeah. that money and they're now spending that money. Mm. They have the opportunity to do that. Whereas during COVID, if you were locked down, you didn't have the opportunity to spend. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big cause of the inflation is governments have spent way too much, have given away way too much. People are now spending that. The level of spending is higher than it would normally be. At some point, that balances out. Hmm. Well, it's interesting you say because governments are trying to blame it on uh, Vladimir Putin at the moment, <laughs> you know, calling it more uh, due to the war. But I think you're right. I think it's really COVID that's been the primary driver. 
I mean, the amount yeah. of money, uh, I think Australia, I don't know how much they printed, but it was a staggering sum in the hundreds of billions. We haven't yeah. seen anything like it. Correct, correct. It, it, it looks like a war, like in terms of the amount of debt that was created, uh, the amount of budget deficits that governments globally went through. Uh, it looks like a wartime. Yeah. And I think economically and, and in terms of the education side and other things, people are now looking back on the COVID reaction and saying, what well, we did too much. Uh, mm. But uh, certainly on the economic side, it, it really was poorly managed in my view. Mm. Um, and we've got this big load of government debt that will carry forward for a, a generation or two. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. If you were, you know, trying to, I know we're talking about forecasting here, but if we look at the Western world, it's really at probably unprecedented levels in terms of debt. Uh, obviously, household debt in Australia, I believe, is the second worst in the world. Uh, but then we've got government debt like the US, which are what, 30 trillion. Uh, and you've got, you know, government debt rising pretty much in all Western countries. Where do you, where does this all stop? You know, what's the end game here? I mean, where would you see us in five to 10 years? Because to me, uh, it would seem that it's fairly unsustainable that we just keep racking up debt forever and politicians don't really seem to be uh, keen on reining it in their insatiable desire to spend. So where do you kind of see that all heading? Yeah, there's, there's kind of two sort of ways you can you can view how this plays out um you can try and do a blend of both but there's sort of two two ways governments can approach it um it, and the the problem as you've identified correctly is that politicians want to spend money they want to be popular they don't want to raise taxes that's unpopular and so they run deficits year after year and so how do you deal with that well one is you've actually got to close that gap either raise taxes cut spending balance the budget um, that's that's the hard thing to do, but it is the right thing to do. Um, the other way, if you look back to what happened in the decades after World War II, um, was essentially interest rates were kept below the rate of inflation for quite a long period of time, several decades. And that essentially allowed uh, the debt level to drop as a percentage of GDP. Mm. Now, that, that process is what they've been doing in China for decades. Um, it's called financial repression is the economic term for it. And it's essentially rather than taxing people, you're gradually stealing their wealth to, to effectively cover the deficit. Yeah, through inflation. Now, if you want to do the best thing for the economy, for long-term growth and productivity, you don't do financial repression. You, you, as a government, you pay for what you spend with the taxes you collect. Um, are governments having the appetite to do that? Will central banks help them in terms of keeping interest rates below inflation? Um, I don't think the appetite is there. I think central banks have been soft in the past on governments in terms of pushing them to do the right thing and balance their budgets. I think it's likely that central banks with their level of polit politicalization will continue to help by keeping interest rates below inflation. So yep. uh, I think it's much more likely governments use financial repression to get on top of debts rather than balancing the budget. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, it's very interesting to see how that's going to play out because uh, it's, I think most people probably can't believe, particularly those in the finance industry, uh, probably 
shock that just keeps going and going and going. The debts just get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's quite amazing. Um, just on your website, you know, you've written lots of fascinating articles that I think are very relevant to people today and, and things that concern people, particularly, uh, you know, Christians. So one of the ones obviously is wages. And, uh, you know, as a Christian, we want to make sure people are paid appropriately. You want to make sure they get uh, remunerated well for, for their job so they can raise their families and do all those sort of things and they can flourish. And so a lot of debate obviously occurs around the topic of the minimum wage. So it's really interesting to get your insight here as to, you know, uh, you know, what are the pros and cons, if you like, of the minimum wage? And what, uh, you know, what do you think is the, the best way to approach this, I guess, from a, a Christian perspective? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably a, a couple of key points on the minimum wage debate that don't get well ventilated, uh, but people often pick a side uh, mm. on this. So kind of one for either side, if you want sort of points for either side on their arguments. Um, the first one is that particularly in Australia, the minimum wage is, is actually not effective in that it's not getting passed through. Um, and that is that particularly in things like uh, hospitality, restaurants, cafes, uh, things like fruit picking, those industries are notorious for not paying the minimum wage. Mm. Um, ultimately, that's crime. People should go to jail for stealing from their employees. Um, so particularly as Christians, we should obey the law and pay the minimum wage for our employees. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a pretty clear thing that we should do. Um, I think the, the flip side to that, though, is that many people who advocate for minimum wage increases forget uh, that when you increase the minimum wage, yes, most people do get an increase, but some people have their hours reduced and some mm. people are made unemployed. And so mm. there is that balance there. Now, for Australia, where I live, uh, the minimum wage is amongst the highest in the world um, of just about any country. And there's different ways to measure it when you think about currency and cost of living, et cetera. But we pay very well in Australia if you're on the minimum wage. Mm. But the thing that drives wages up is, is not so much the minimum wage. Um, it's the battle to get staff and currently in Australia, we've, we've seen that. And it's not in all industries and, and it's not flying through as much as perhaps people would hope, but when you have low unemployment, um, the opportunity for people to change to a different company, to a different sector and get paid more is real, it is happening. Um, and that is the thing that ultimately drives wages up is, is that sort of demand and supply balance. Um, uh, and I guess probably the other long-term factor as well is productivity. And that's something mm. that pretty much all developed countries have done very poorly on in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, productivity great. growth rates have been quite poor. And if productivity grows, you can pay your, afford to pay your employees more. If productivity doesn't grow, you, you're then having this battle over profits versus wages. And they're just, there's a fixed pie. It's, it's much more important to grow the pie and then everyone can get a larger share. Mm. Well, one thing that's interesting to me with small business is a lot of small business uh, now outsources overseas. I mean, that was really the domain of big business 20 years ago, you know, call centers and things like that. But now small business, thanks to the advent of Zoom and internet and everything, can outsource as well. So I suspect 
the wages then come into that in the sense it's become a almost a global playing field, if you like, uh, for wages. And so Australians will be impacted by that, that trend. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely see that with, um, for instance, in professional services, they're like, what can we send to the Philippines? What can we outsource uh, that we can get down at, you know, a quarter of the price um, because yeah. we're struggling to get those staff here in Australia? Yeah. Um, other examples is you'll see at restaurants and cafes that they'll reduce the hours they're open because they can't get the staff. Or alternatively, some of them will move from a table service model to just there's people in the kitchen, they ding the bell, your, your meal goes or they ring the buzzer and it goes up on the counter and you go and collect your meal from the counter. Mm. So things like that where they reduce um, the amount of labor. staff time yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, to maximise the labour so they can serve more people. Things like that come through. Um, ultimately, what we, the conversation we're not really having in Australia is if we don't have enough staff, um, prices of some things need to go up and then people will make decisions to change what they buy. Mm. And so that might mean, particularly in something like the restaurant industry, everybody's got to pay the minimum wage. It's the law, you should pay it. Um, that means the cost of meals will go up. It means either we'll choose cheaper options or we'll go out less often. And we just need to accept that's that's what happens when we pay people properly and when the economy is going well. Mm. What about immigration? Both government and big business seem to be very obsessed with immigration. Uh, I remember when uh, Dominic Perrottet got elected last year, one of the first things he said, which surprised me, just in the quantum, he said he wanted to bring 2 million immigrants into New South Wales within five years, which seemed to me to be a huge number. So what sort of impact would you imagine immigration would have on uh, wages growth? Is that going to suppress it? Yes, yeah. Um, and look, we might come back to that particular comment by Dominic Perrottet because there's a very significant um, problem with what he said in one of his other stated names around but it, bringing people it does help in a way to live and we simply don't have enough housing um, mm. it does put some downward pressure on wages but it's not as much as people think um, and the reason is because those people come here they take a job they earn money then they start spending and so they demand goods and services mm. and so it's it's not as if um, bringing in people is the easy solution mm. um, but the tough conversation that people just don't want to have is there are some things because of our higher wage levels we cannot do in Australia at a competitive cost level and we need to let them go and there are some things that will cost more because we don't have enough people in the workforce we just need to accept that there are some things we can do so certainly it's well known that there are people who are unemployed who you know, could be working at the local supermarket, cafe, petrol station, plenty of, you know, um, sort of low-skill type jobs where people can come in, pick up the work and do it very quickly. There's, there's a good pool of people who could do that um, but are choosing not to take up those jobs. Perhaps they're targeting something in a sector they've been in and they want to stay there. Perhaps they want something better than that. I guess there's the, always the question that if we're giving someone an unemployment benefit, what do we expect from them? And uh, my response to that would be, we expect them to take a job that's close to them, that's open, yeah. and not be on the benefit. 
And if yeah. they've got a, a dream of pursuing some other sort of employment, they can do that uh, whilst they're employed. Um, but yeah. we, we should expect people, if they're taking a benefit, to take a job that's open. Mm. No, that makes good sense. Um, probably a challenge politically, but certainly yes. a very important one. <laughs> and, yes. and I think um, if you want to take a strict biblical view on it, I think, uh, you know, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. The Bible makes it very clear, particularly in laziness. You know, you read Proverbs. Proverbs is very big on it's really this idea there are two types of poor. We need to help those that are willing to, to work, uh, live in unjust societies. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why we're called to help those in need. But those that are not prepared to work, I don't believe we are called to, to support them. So I think it's a, a challenge that we need to grapple with um, as, uh, as believers. Um, but, you know, we touched on this issue, you know, immigration and uh, the potential impact on housing and housing affordability is a massive issue pretty much around the Western world. You know, house prices have uh, skyrocketed really over the last 30 years as you've had this trend down in interest rates for 30 years. Now, of course, they're rising rapidly and house prices are starting to fall. Um, where, where do you, what, what do you think is the, if you like, the solution to housing affordability? Is it going to take care of itself as interest rates bring them down or, or do we need to take a much more proactive stance on housing affordability? Yeah, yeah. So I've made a number of submissions to government on this issue and, and there was an inquiry uh, before the last federal election um, that looked into this. And I, I presented to them, as did a few dozen other people. And, and I guess the, the key source of the problem of housing affordability in Australia is government. And that's government at all three levels, local, state and federal. Um, are getting in the way of what the market would normally do in producing enough housing. And so there are so many parts that feed into that. You can't blame, for instance, just the tax system, which is mostly the federal government. You, you can't blame the lack of releasing of land on its own, which is state governments. Development levies, which are local governments, are a big part of the cost factor. So all of those things is, is government getting in there and through you know wrong taxation, through failing to allow people to, to use their land in a more dense way or convert it from, you know, outer suburb farmland into uh, residential lots. All those things come together to make housing expensive in Australia. And, and low interest rates have been a big part of that as well. That it's, it's a very simple thing that the RBA for many years didn't understand. And it, it, their understanding finally changed when a couple of their economists wrote a paper that laid it out for them. Funnily enough, those economists left the RBA within a year of writing that paper. So perhaps that indicated their work was maybe a little too controversial. But <laughs> most people would understand the basics that if, if you buy a rental property and it delivers you a 3% net yield and a term deposit delivers you 0.5%, you think that's okay. Mm. Well, now interest rates have risen. You might get 4% on a term deposit. That 3% yield on a property doesn't look very attractive anymore. Mm. Um, and so clearly house prices have to fall so that yields can rise. Uh, the other so factor, sense, I was going to say, the other factor that it's going to affect that is the borrowing capacity now is going to shrink dramatically as, as rates rise. And even though the yields may stay the same, as in just the actual gross rent that someone's receiving, um, the actual interest repayments that they're making now are going to double, have probably doubled in the last 
six months. So the properties become less and less attractive from a investor's point of view. Yeah, and and um, with my business, a lot of the stuff I do revolves around funding home loans in various formats. And so we're, we're certainly seeing that, you know, people who might have been able to borrow a million dollars for now with the interest rate, they can only borrow seven fifty eight hundred. you know. So it means when they turn up to auction, they just can't bid the same number. Mm. Uh, so that, that factor is definitely flying through at the moment. And people can't afford to pay because they can't borrow what they could previously. Mm. Therefore, prices just have to come down. Do you have a particular, I know it's once again, it's the forecasting thing. People love talking about house prices. In fact, I read an article today, various predictions from Westpac and from other entities about how much it'll fall, around 20 to 25% from different groups. How do, how do you see it sort of play out? I mean, if it only, my guess is if it only fell 20%, that's probably just giving it back what it gained during COVID anyway. It wouldn't actually necessarily make it that much more affordable, really. Spot on there. Um, that most people have forgotten, you know, that writing these articles, oh, it's terrible, house prices fall 20%. Well, yes, if you bought at the peak in late 21, early 22, um, yes, you could be down 20%. But for most people who've been uh, in the position of being a housing owner for the long term, there was a massive spike when COVID took off and, and really just as interest rates are rising and getting back to normal, um, mm. that's unwinding. So, I mean, 20 to 25 is what a lot of people are saying. Um, clearly the interest rates, uh, the normalisation of interest rates um, is having an impact. I think probably if you want to be positive on property, and these are factors that maybe don't kick in in the next 12 to 18 months, maybe take a bit longer to flow through. Um, our housing stock in Australia is simply not keeping up uh, with the population growth we've had. Mm. Um, so that means there are more people trying to squeeze into the same number of houses. Um, Rental yields are going up fairly substantially in capital cities. Uh, and so that means that if you're looking at the yield equation, well, um, you know, house prices prospectively going forward, if you're looking at the yield equation, house prices are falling and the amount of rent you get is going up. So the yield that you get is, is starting to turn around. Um, and, and that rental yield story, in many ways, when people talk about housing affordability, there's two, two arguments, there's two sides. One is how much does a house cost to buy and how much does it cost to rent? Yeah. And for me, how much a house costs, well, that's, that's more a wealthier person's problem. How much does the rent cost? That's a lower income person's problem. And that's the issue that we're, for me, I think we should be most concerned about is that low income people cannot get affordable housing um, in, in many cases. It, it just isn't there without living well, well away from employment areas, um, making sacrifices like putting people in multiple families in one house kind of thing. And also just the, the percentage of people's incomes that go towards housing is staggering, whether it's a mortgage or whether it's renting, it's, it's huge now what goes in. To just into this one asset class that when you when you when you reflect on it you think well actually at the end of the day it's a roof over our heads yet we pour so much money into it as a sector yeah and in some ways that's not very productive for the economy that mm. um, we invest so much in this place that we live in but the place that we live in doesn't really produce anything you know we get to live in it so that, that's something helpful but 
it's not like investing in a business where the business mm. produces goods and services that can be sold that can earn income it, creates employment it, all sorts of things yeah yeah you don't get all those spin-off benefits that if uh, in an ideal sort of economic setup, you would definitely be investing more in businesses and less in housing. Um, and that would help the economy grow faster and help incomes grow faster. Mm. Fantastic. Um, well, look, just to sort of finish off, back to your sort of area of expertise, um, you know, you, you're an expert in debt investments and, um, you know, fix the fixed interest space, if you like. What, um, what role do these debt instruments play in people's portfolios? Where, where do you see it sort of fitting in? I mean, I know you're doing it at the institutional level, but obviously debt goes into conventional super funds and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of parts that can play and depending on the risk that you're taking with the instruments, higher risk, higher return. So it really stretches quite a lot from at the higher risk end, you're doing things that have returns the same or perhaps better than vanilla equities. Um, and, and so it can be an equity replacement, and particularly for people who are heading towards retirement uh, or in retirement and are reducing their equity exposures, it can play a part there of delivering a good return without taking nearly as much risk as equities uh, mm. if it's done well. Mm. Um, at the other end, there's the historical view. People would talk about the 60-40 portfolio, 60% yep. equities, 40% government bonds, long-term government bonds. Yeah, And there's historically when equities have gone down, the bond prices have increased as interest rates have fallen. So there was a level of natural offset. Now, one of the things I've been warning people for the last couple of years is it's don't not possible. expect that to be the same. Nah. In the it's not possible. Nah. Yeah. Yeah. And without knowing what was going to happen, saying, well, what happens if interest rates rise? You will see equities fall and we'll see bond prices fall at the same time. Um, so that that kind of relationship is broken down um, yep. and it didn't deliver what people expected it would deliver in, in balancing each other. This year, they've both gone down, they've both hurt you. Mm. Um, so uh, I think for me, that's where variable rate securities, um, whether it's government, corporate, uh, or the more sort of esoteric things that I do, um, can play a good part is that yeah, this has been a good year in the sense that income has gone up, the price of the bonds has gone down a little, but the income's been much more than the mark-to-market downward movement. So, yeah, that, that's that's why pretty much all that I do is floating rate or if it's fixed rate, it's, it's usually 12 months or less. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, uh, Jonathan, it's been fantastic you, having you on the uh, on the program. Great to get your wisdom, as always, and... Uh, you know, we're living in a more increasingly chaotic world. So it's always good to hear from people who are on the front lines, managing people's capital and navigating through, uh, through a more challenging season. So yeah, thanks uh, very much for your time today.